Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 2. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Acts chapter 2, we'll look at verses 22 to 41. The scene is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. And this was God's coming to his people, to his temple, uh, coming to fill the corporate body of Christ on earth with true life, coming to empower his people to be witnesses uh, to his grace. The Spirit came upon the disciples audibly and visibly, as we've looked at um, last week. And the Spirit enabled them to speak in languages that they had not learned. Uh, And that was as a testimony to God's intent to take his salvation to all peoples. And last week we covered the first part of Peter's sermon uh, that day, where he began to explain from the prophet Joel what the Spirit's activity meant. Pentecost meant that the last days had come. Uh, It meant that now not only would all the, the great prophets of old and the apostles of old Um, be the mouthpieces and instruments of God on earth, but that everyone who is ordained as a pastor, no, Uh, everyone who is a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ would now become prophets or ministers, uh, declaring salvation as uh, revealed and accomplished through Jesus. And it meant, uh, this Pentecost event, meant that the whole world was God's target audience, right? Uh, That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. So, who is the Lord on whose name we're to call to be saved? Uh, That's the second part of Peter's sermon that we'll look at in a moment. Let's pray, and then we'll read the passage together. Father, we need your help to understand your word to be changed by it so that we would uh, more reflect your grace in our lives and our callings. We pray that you would send your spirit even now to fill us once again to renew our hearts and minds with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Most readers, um, when they come across this or the other um, sermons that are recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, uh, they'll recognize that the, the record of this sermon is probably not an exhaustive account right, of what Peter said that day. I mean, Luke even summarizes, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, right? So his sermon went on for a while. This only took a couple minutes to read. It probably wasn't all the content that he was sharing. It was, it's probably a summary, right? It's probably a summary of the points that Peter made that day. And this sermon um, is fairly representative of the sermons in Acts, and it's a standard for what Christian sermons should be. And I would say, um, more than just Christian sermons, this is the way we minister the gospel to people when we share the gospel with our friends, right? Who is this sermon about? Sunday school answer, <laughs> Jesus, right? If Jesus isn't there, it's not a Christian sermon. How does this sermon tell people about Jesus? By explaining and expositing the Holy Scriptures. What does the sermon say about Jesus? It says uh, that his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension are all good news. Why does the sermon focus on Jesus? Because in him is salvation in him is the forgiveness of our real guilt before God. In Jesus, uh, we have peace with God. We have true transformation, newness of life, and the sure hope of eternal joy. And the realities of his grace and his authority demand our response. Jesus is um, the most important person in the world. <laughs> Put simply, uh, the most important person who ever lived. And his life has had a tremendous impact on not only the whole world, but on your life 
uh, whether you follow him or not. Really, anyone who has heard of Jesus will probably acknowledge that about him. Um, uh, Professor Emeritus of History at Yale, uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, says, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and in his name that millions pray. In fact, um, probably over 2 billion people in the world pray in Jesus' name. That's almost a third of all humans. And that's a pretty big increase from 120 disciples sitting in a room in a house praying, waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. And the first major increase that we see in the church is recorded in our passage this morning, and it comes because this is the dawn of a new age, right? the last days, the age of the Messiah and of his kingdom. So um, let's get into the text and find out what's the big deal about Jesus. Uh, verses uh, 22 and 23, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter is addressing here... Um, remember from last week, it's, it's Jews who had been scattered um, all over the world, and they, they, they come from these other nations uh, a few times a year um, into Jerusalem for the festivals, and they're here for the Feast of Weeks, or it, it's, a, it's one of three kind of uh, Thanksgiving uh, festivals that they had. And so not only are there Jews there who live in Jerusalem who were probably part of the crowd who was clamoring for Jesus' death. Um, but there are Jews who had been scattered from uh, throughout the Roman Empire, the, the known world, who were gathered here uh, on this day listening to Peter's words. And apparently, even though these foreigners are here, Jesus is a big enough name already that Peter assumes everybody's already heard of him. He was a man attested to you by God, which means that God had backed Jesus and his ministry. Uh, how did he do that? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Jesus. Um, and he says, as you yourselves know, right? You know that God's mighty power was at work through him. You know that everyone was amazed and astonished by these wonders, by these miracles, you know that these were signs that pointed to Jesus' significance. And interestingly, um, commentator I. Howard Marshall points out that later Jewish polemic against Jesus, right, the Jews didn't like the Christians, they didn't like Jesus, and, and their polemic against Jesus did not deny that he had wrought miracles. Right? They, um, they just would rather attribute those miracles to dark powers sorcery or devilry than, um, than to admit that God had been the one working these miracles through Jesus. Right. And this Jesus, Peter continues, 
God delivered up according to his definite plan when you crucified him by the, by the hands of lawless men. This is one of those clear intersections in the Bible where God's complete sovereignty is shown to work through human agents who are responsible for their actions. It's, uh, it's like Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, he'd been sold into slavery and a life of uh, hardship and imprisonment um, by his brothers. And through his slavery and imprisonment, Joseph found himself in a place to save the world from uh, starvation. And when his brothers discovered who it was who had authority over all the world and who held their, their lives in his very hand, um, they were terrified that they would receive his wrath. They were truly guilty of committing great evils against their brother. And yet Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, a, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So the scriptures uh, do not explain how it is that on the one hand God is sovereign over everything, and on the other hand we are responsible for our own actions, They don't explain how it is. They simply assert that it is true. It is a mystery of God. Don't even try to figure it out, really. Just give God glory for it. (laughs) And um, And so applying this to Jesus, Judas, that treacherous instrument by whom Jesus was betrayed, was truly ordained by God's definite plan to deliver Jesus over to those who would kill him. And if it hadn't taken place, then there would be no sacrifice, there would be no atonement for our sins, there would be no salvation. So Jesus said, before his death, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Judas can't boast that he was an indispensable part of God's plan. He is truly guilty of the greatest crime in history. And here in our passage, Peter implies that everyone there listening to him was complicit in that crime, even though surely they had not all been present at the time. How is it that Peter can justly accuse people who had been out of town, out of the country, of being guilty of participation in the murder of Jesus. It's because, as a human race, we have solidarity with one another in our rebellion against God, right? in our sin. It was people just like us who put Jesus to death. No matter how much we would like to believe otherwise, if we had been there, the outcome would not have been different. Because by our nature, uh, we would all prefer to have God out of our lives. I would rather not have a sovereign Lord over my life telling me how to think, how to feel, how to act, telling me what to do with my time and money, 
telling me who to sleep with and who not to, threatening my self-centered autonomy. And so if the opportunity arises to be rid of him for good, it was people just like me who killed Jesus, people just like you. He died for our sins, and he died because of our sins. So yes, uh, it was the Jews and the Romans in Jerusalem who were immediately responsible for crucifying Jesus, but that's not because they were especially evil. It's because, in a sense, they were acting as representatives for all of us. But you know, um, the focus of Peter's sermon here isn't so much on our guilt as it is on the sovereign plan of God uh, working itself out through Jesus' life and his death, and his resurrection for our good, for our salvation. The focus isn't on the bad news as much as it is on the good news. So Peter continues, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Uh, This is a quote from Psalm 16, which we actually uh, looked at several weeks ago. But there's a strange phrase here in verse 24 where Peter says, God raised Jesus from the dead. He loosed the pangs of death. Um, Pangs are usually associated with the the agony of childbirth. And um, commentators say about this, one in particular, David Peterson says, uh, death is regarded as being in labor and unable to hold back its child. It was impossible for death to hold Jesus for long because he was the Messiah. He was the son of David, the one about whom David himself had prophesied in Psalm 16. David knew that even death and the corruption of the grave could not stop the Savior King who would come from his line. So since Jesus was the promised Savior King, God raised him from the dead. Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades or hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, the apostles, are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and, being, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, he quotes from Psalm 110, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
I think it's important to see the warmth of Peter's address here. Um, you know, he doesn't distance himself from the Jews who were guilty of Jesus' death. Uh, he appeals to them as brothers. Right? And this is a hint when he says brothers. Even though he's about to say some pretty hard things to them, uh, he's not saying it simply to condemn them. He's saying it out of love for them. And so he continues to explain how the disciples and the apostles who are filled with the Holy Spirit this day of Pentecost are witnesses to the resurrection of the Son of God, just as Jesus had foretold. Remember, this sermon is, uh, it began as an explanation for the strange events that were associated with the Holy Spirit's coming. The Spirit was the one who was enabling them to testify about Jesus. Indeed, the Spirit is only there Peter says, because the risen Jesus ascended into heaven, being exalted to God's right hand to the place of highest authority, the Spirit's work is visible and audible among everyone there because Jesus poured him out. This is a privilege that all the scriptures reserve for God himself. Nobody pours out God's Spirit except for God, right? And this is a privilege that Jesus is exercising. On a brief side note, um, there's some crazy stuff happening here on the day of Pentecost, right? Some really remarkable supernatural stuff, speaking in tongues, right? Um, The Spirit comes with a, a loud sound of a mighty rushing wind. He descends on God's people like flames of fire, and he enables them to speak in languages that they didn't learn. I want you to notice how Peter's sermon is an explanation of the Spirit, yet the focus of the sermon is not on the Spirit or on his gifts. The focus of Peter's sermon is on the risen and exalted Jesus. Just as Jesus had promised and taught in the Gospels, the Spirit testifies to the Son. And if ever there was a Spirit-filled church It was here at Pentecost, and the result was the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, any church that claims to be spirit-filled that doesn't have a noticeable focus on the person and work of Jesus is not a spirit-filled church. End of side note. A lot more could be said about Jesus as the descendant of David that God had promised, as it said, he swore with an oath to David, uh, would rule over God's people. Uh, You can read, actually, those promises on your own in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, Psalm 89, Psalm 132. Um, They're called oaths or promises or covenant. But let me read, actually, a few verses from uh, Psalm 89. God says, I will not violate my covenant. Or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. This is said about Jesus. And so Peter says, at the conclusion of his sermon... 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And if this sermon is being preached to you, if you're standing there in the shoes of the audience, that's when your jaw drops in terror. Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting for. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he rules as the eternal divine Lord over all things until God subdues all of his enemies under his feet. And you made yourself his enemies by killing him. And that's bad news. But remember Peter's intention with this sermon was not uh, just to give them a guilt trip. He's appealing to his audience as brothers. And so they don't sense condemnation from him. Rather, they're able to sense his concern for them. Right? And in their desperation, they turn to him. They turn to all the apostles for help. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were stricken in their conscience. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Jesus is not just our Lord. He is the Lord. Whether you acknowledge his rule in your life or not, uh, he rules. So what do you do? You, we, we've read Psalm 110 this morning, and um, it's, a, it's almost a frightening picture of his majesty as he crushes his enemies, this Lord, who has all authority in heaven and earth. What do you do when you finally realize that pretty much your whole life has been spent as, uh, as one of rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What do you do when you realize that all your attempts at living autonomously from God will in the end amount to nothing? What do you do when you're cut to the heart with remorse for your sin in light of the, the real majesty of Jesus Christ? You better hear the good news that there is forgiveness promised to everyone who turns away from their sin, right? Repentance is turning away from your sin and who pledges their allegiance to Jesus. And not only forgiveness, but new life and transformation as the gift of the Holy Spirit himself is promised as well. If you don't hear the good news about Jesus, you'll never be able to bear the bad news about yourself, right? And think about that dynamic also from the standpoint 
of someone who is called to minister the grace of God to others. As if you've called on the name of the Lord, you've been saved, you've been declared a mouthpiece of God, you've been filled with his spirit and empowered to do ministry and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. Think about it from that perspective. For a few years uh, after I became a Christian, I was actually pretty mean. Um, I don't think I had a very good grasp on God's grace toward me. Somewhere inside, a large part of me believed that, you know, I'm pretty smart, and that's why I'm a Christian. So if I could just convince others of the logic of Christianity, then they could be right and they could be saved like me. Um, And really, I think I just cared about being right. And so my aim was to win arguments and to make people feel uh, the guilt of their sins because that would make me feel better if I somehow accomplished that. So my evangelistic approach, as you can imagine, was not very kind. For example, most of my interactions with my dad, who was an atheist, um, were filled with threats of divine judgment. You know, if you don't do this, if you don't become a Christian, you're going to go to hell. And do you know what that means? Let me try to describe that to you. Um, I can't actually um, really remember communicating grace to him at all until it was probably too late and he was lying in a hospital bed in a a drug-induced coma, dying of emphysema and cancer. Um, I can't help but wonder whether a grace-filled approach on my part might have made a difference in his sinful, lonely existence. Um, I'm convinced that our message for the world, just as Peter's message here should not focus on threats of judgment however true they may be because people instinctively know their guilt they're too afraid even to bring their guilt to the surface in order to think about it so they bury it but they know it's there and do you think that calling attention to their guilt constantly is going to help them wrestle with it and come to God no. The, the free offer of grace that is found in the gospel of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's the best way to help a person acknowledge their guilt before God. Um, I believe it was David Brainerd who uh, discovered this as he was a missionary to the Native Americans in the 1700s. He was a contemporary of uh, Jonathan Edwards, you may know. For a long time, um, as a missionary, he sought to bring the Native Americans to an awareness of their guilt, and he pounded on their depravity and on their sinfulness and on their guilt, trying to wrestle a confession from their hard hearts. Um, And then he preached a sermon on the love of God in Christ, and they were stumbling over themselves to repent. They fell stricken, weeping confessing and converting. And they repented. They turned away from their sins only when a glorious and beautiful alternative was set before them for them to turn to. It's only in the safe context of that, the gospel, 
the love of God with the promise of full forgiveness that someone can allow themselves to be cut to the heart. It's only when you know that Jesus is a good and merciful king that you become willing to confess your treason and bend the knee to him as your king. As Paul said in Romans 2, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not God's wrath that often leads us to repentance. Only a true experience of God's kindness, God's grace, can win your repentance and faith. And so only a true experience of God's grace can make you the kind of person who ministers the love of Christ to others for their conversion. And honestly, I think we're pretty bad at this in our particular theological tradition. I think we have a tendency to view evangelism as warning people about the bad news rather than joyfully proclaiming the good news. But there's forgiveness even for us. And let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. If there is anything good about Jesus, let us think about these things. Let us talk about them. Can you imagine what would happen if we became a truly repentant people, reorienting our entire lives on the good news about Jesus? If we were a church that was captivated by the grace of God and so freed from all of our strivings to run our lives apart from him? If we were a people that was filled with a spirit who testifies to the love of Jesus, maybe we wouldn't multiply six times in one day like happened here at, um, at Pentecost to the church, but my guess is that the Lord would add to the number of those who call on his name for salvation if his salvation truly became the greatest delight in our lives and the thing that we were happiest to talk about with our friends. Let us call on his name together and ask him to make that a reality for us in our church. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no other name in the universe that we're to call on in order to be saved. And so we call on you that you would do a work in our lives by your Spirit, that you would make us um, sure of your grace toward us, your favor that we don't deserve, that you would lift up our hearts by um, showing us that all the good promises of God have been surely bought by your blood once and for all, that you have accomplished our salvation. Lord Jesus, would you not only assure us of your grace you captivate our hearts and minds by your grace. Let us think of nothing else. Help us even uh, not to think too much of our own sinfulness. We know it's there and we know it needs to be rooted out. But once it's been rooted out, Lord, help us to turn to you, uh, that you would deal with it, that you would remove our guilt, and that you would transform our lives by your Holy Spirit who's been poured out on us. And we pray this not just for the for our own sake, for our own consciences, that we would have peace, but that we would truly be able to engage with the entire world as your ministers, your mouthpieces, 
proclaiming your mighty works and your wondrous deeds, uh, proclaiming your death and your resurrection as a salvation that uh, people must call on your name in order to be saved. We pray that our lives, uh, our words, and our actions would make this something beautiful to people, Uh, would make this something not to be afraid of because it's simply an exposure of their sins, but uh, something to delight in as their sins finally can be dealt with and they can have rest for their souls. Um, We all want to find our rest in you, Lord. Would you spread your peace uh, through us uh, in our community? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.